going to wait for the confirmation that we exist. At this point, we should exist. Uh, just wait. I just, I just require somebody to confirm our existence in the, in the chat. And then this, the second that happens, then we collapse the, uh, the wave function and we know that we exist. Because <laughs> uh, well, I can see that's people. the way to do it. I believe I that's exist. yeah, yeah. They, places at once. <laughs> that that we are the uh, we are the Boltzmann brains that are observing you guys who are watching this show right now. You are the Boltzmann brains that have suddenly appeared in the universe and are now observing us, <clears throat> confirming I don't know the Copernican principle or something. All right. <laughs> Marty the Martian says that we exist, but but they don't. So as long as one of us exists. Fred, it's good to talk to you again. Who are you? What do you do? Um, I'm very well, thank you, Fraser. And it's you know, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to talk to you again as well, especially on an auspicious day when we've got the news of water on the moon and all the rest of it that's going on. Oh, uh, you, thank you for having I, me on the show. I mentioned this before we started, but, you know, I won't go through my rant again. So, uh, yeah, yeah. No, great. Water on the moon. Hooray. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, uh, who are you? For anyone who doesn't know, anyone who, I guess, you know, lives on, on this hemisphere of the world, uh, who are you? My name is Fred Watson. Uh, I was for 20 years the astronomer in charge of the National Observatory, uh, which of the National Optical Observatory, which was at a place called Siding Spring Mountain in rural New South Wales, near Coonabarabran, a town that has got an astronomical ring to it because of the observatory there. Uh, in fact, it was the what was called the, Astro the Australian Astronomical Observatory that I was uh, astronomer in charge of. That changed its governance um, a couple of years ago. And so my job changed as well. I didn't go, as most of my colleagues did, to the university sector. I stayed with the government sector because we were a nationally funded facility. And they found a job for me, which has the delightful title of the astronomer at large. So I'm Australia's astronomer at large, um, which means that I'm kind of everywhere. Um, is exactly as you said, I'm a wave function, really, not a person. Right, yeah. You're as you're as as big as you need to be, as big as Australia needs you to be. Uh, you're you're right there. So what does what does the astronomer at large do? I mean, what would your typical uh, I don't know month look like? Uh, it, it's a lot of it is this kind of thing, Fraser. It's doing what you and I both love. I, I know you've got the same passion for getting the word out as I have, and um, uh, so it, it, the the role itself is an outreach and advocacy role. So it's a lot of it is um, talking to the media, um, talking to other scientists, because having been a working astronomer, I can, you know, I, I know a lot of people all around the world, many in your country, uh, as well as uh, here in Australia and in Europe. Um, and so find out what they're doing, which is fabulous. It means I can go and talk to people and get all the latest exciting stuff which they often have to say, you cannot possibly tell anybody about this because it's embargo. Oh, no. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> oh man, you just, again, you're just, you're triggering me. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to wind you up. But there, there is a, a sort of grown up um, uh, part of it as well, in that uh, the little branch of the government department within which I work, uh, is responsible for a couple of the major national facilities that we uh, are involved with here in Australia. One is on home soil, or at least partly on home soil. That is 
the square kilometre array, mm -hmm. which, um, as you will know, uh, will be, when it's built, the world's biggest radio telescope uh, with a low-frequency component in Western Australia, a really radio-quiet region of the world, um, the mid-frequency component in Southern Africa, actually in the Haikaru region of South Africa. Um, they, those, uh, the, the, the mid-frequency component will use dishes uh, very much in the, along the lines of what we imagine a radio telescope to look like. But the low-frequency component in Western Australia will consist of 131,000 Christmas trees. Um, because their antennas are about two metres tall, a little bit higher than me. Um, and they look just like a Christmas tree. They're a, yeah. an unusual kind of dipole. 131,000 of these, which means the telescope is steered electronically. It's not pointed by bearings and things of that sort. It all happens in the computing. So that's one component of the, of the branch that I work in. The other is that here in Australia, since um, 2017, in fact, we've had a strategic partnership with the European Southern Observatory. Uh, which, as you know, run telescopes in Chile, um, in particular the very large telescope uh, at Cerro Paranal, uh, which is a, a misnomer because it's four telescopes, not one. <laughs> yeah. um, but the VLT uh, is a, a, a facility that Australian astronomers can now access because of this deal right. done between the Australian government and, and ESO. And so we administer that as well. Right. I how is Australia? Because last time I was, or the, the last time and the only time I was in Australia, the quality of the seeing blew my mind. Um, you know, here in Canada, we, do, we, we get the core of the Milky Way just, just barely yeah. rising above the horizon. And then for one month in, in, in the summertime, and then it heads back down and then it's gone. And that's where the planets also follow this yep. sad yep. dim pathway across the uh, the southern uh, horizon for you they go right overhead the core of the milky way goes right overhead um and and the clarity of seeing the milky way without all of that muck of the atmosphere <laughs> was like it just blew my mind the way i describe it and i wasn't even in the in the, the darkest outback I had trouble finding constellations that I yeah. knew were in front of yeah. me because there were because there were so many stars and they were so clear that you couldn't tell where the bright stars began and the dim stars ended. It was stunning. Why are there not more big observatories in Australia? That's a great question, um, and you're absolutely right. It was the it was the the galactic centre, the centre of our Milky Way galaxy, that brought me to Australia in the first place because I had to observe variable stars in that region of the sky. This is about 150 years ago, something like that. Yeah, relativistically but, speaking, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that's right. Time dilation and Time dilation, all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah. So. The telescope uh, that I came to use for that is the biggest telescope, uh, optical telescope on Australian soil. It's called the Anglo-Australian Telescope. It's on a mountain, as I mentioned, Siding Spring Mountain, about uh, line of sight, it's about 350 kilometers from Sydney. Now that mountain top is only about 4,000 feet high. Uh, it's, it's relatively pointy. It's not one of these long flat things. And that's because it's part of a, uh, essentially a, 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 the remnants of a volcano that was quite active 13 million years ago. Um, 
but the, the so that that's one of the problems that we face in Australia. We don't have any really high mountains, uh, and the other thing that we don't have is really high mountains on the western seaboard. So that, that telescope that I've just mentioned is actually it's only as I said three or four hundred kilometers from the east coast. And back in the 1960s and 70s, when people looked at the kind of geographical conditions that you need uh, in order to make it worthwhile building very large telescopes, um, which need that exquisite atmospheric quality in order to work properly, uh, as you said, what we call good seeing. You need, you, you need a minimum amount of turbulence in the atmosphere. So the, the, the scientists in that era looked at the, the geography and it turns out that the best sites in the world, and you've only to look at a map of where all the world's biggest telescopes are, they're on the uh, western seaboard of a continent, they're at middle latitudes, which gives you actually the, the most nights available in a year, uh, and they also um, are high, more than about 12,000 feet, uh, three and a half thousand meters. Now we don't have that in Australia. So whilst the site at Siding Spring where the Anglo-Australian telescope is, and I should have mentioned it's got a 3.9 meter mirror. So it's kind of comparable with the, the Kitt Peak telescope. Yeah, that's, a, that's a reasonable telescope. It is, uh, but uh, the site that it's on, whilst it's good and it's certainly better than anything that there is in Europe, uh, it's by world-class standards it is a second-class site. So it mm. doesn't compare with Mauna Kea, for example. It doesn't compare with Cerro Paranal in Chile. Mauna Kea, of course, in Hawaii. doesn't compare with uh, Roque de los Mochachos, which is in La Palma in the Canary Islands. That's about 3,000 metres. It, it's got this propensity for the turbulence not to be excellent, if I can put it that way. And I'm not saying it's rubbish all the time because it's not, it's, yeah. you know, um, it's, I mean, it's being able to drive there from Sydney yeah. in a couple of hours is a, is a nice advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one reason why the telescope has done so well. Um, it's a little bit more than, it's about, actually about a five-hour drive, but that's fine, uh, to, to the telescope. But there is a town nearby. It's an attractive town, which is um, a place where people enjoy living. I lived there for 25 years, and I had a great time. Yeah. Uh, so all of those things do combine to give you um, the, in a sense, they give you a, a well-being for the telescope that allows you to keep it up to date. Um, and so the Anglo-Australian telescope, for all it's now, 46 years old, uh, is still doing frontline research. And that's partly because of the kind of, the kind of science that we do. Yeah. Um, what, what we don't do, and I'm saying we because I used to be the astronomer in charge, I'm not now, but I'll, I'll still say we, uh, what we don't do is this you know, uh, high resolution imaging that we've got used to seeing from telescopes like the Keck telescopes in Hawaii, like the VLT in Chile. Uh, where they use adaptive optic systems to correct for the turbulence of the atmosphere. We can't do that at Siding Spring because there's too much turbulence mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. And so we've concentrated instead on spectroscopy, the science of breaking up starlight and galaxy light into its rainbow of colours and looking at that barcode of information that's in there. Yeah. And we've done that in a rather unusual way too. We've uh, used uh, optical fibers in order to allow us to look at more than one object simultaneously. Can you talk about that technique? Because I know you were at the forefront of that. 
uh, a long time ago, that's right. So it wasn't actually invented uh, here in Australia. Um, the idea came from a scientist by the name of Roger Angel, who's uh, in Arizona. He's at, um, at the, um, actually, University of Arizona uh, Steward Observatory down yeah. in Tucson. And uh, he was recognizing in the late 1970s that the, the communications industry was producing optical fibers which had very, very high transmission. In other words, you put light in at one end and a kilometer away at the other end, you're still getting almost the same amount of light out of it. And he recognized that that had potential for astronomy. Uh, he then figured out that the best thing you could do with it is to use these fibers to sort of rearrange the objects in the field of view of a telescope. Uh, you're playing God almost. So where, when, you, when you've got a telescope which delivers an image, it might have you know, thousands of stars or thousands of galaxies within that image. And you want to know the intimate details of all those objects. And the way to do that is to take a spectrum of each object. But if you're doing that one at a time, it takes you a lifetime. And that's kind of how things were when I started in this game. And so Roger Angel's idea was to use the flexibility of the fibers to pick off the light from the objects that you're interested in and then line them all up uh, because that's exactly what you need for a spectrograph to make all these beautiful rainbow spectra of the target objects. It's and it's it's a stunning piece of engineering when you see these. It's like a it's like a disc, like a metal disc, with a little hole for every galaxy that's going to be in your field of view, and then a little piece of fiber optic that is poking through this this field of view, and then you're you're able to just perfectly get that light from that one galaxy. And I just, it blows my mind to think about just this idea, right? That, that, that you would, that you would sort of hard code the sky above in this very detailed way. And yet, yeah. And yet we look at some of these really incredible sky surveys that have been done. Some incredible work has been done with this technique. It's, it's yeah. very successful, very uh, productive way of, of observing large amounts of the, of the night sky to get this spectrographic data. That's exactly right. What you've described is uh, precisely what we did in the early days, um, because it was the only way we could think of to do that alignment of each fiber with its target object, because you need to make that alignment with an accuracy of round about a hundredth of a millimeter. So it's no good just plonking optical fibers anywhere. They're only um, a tenth of a millimeter in diameter anyway. So it all becomes a, a you know a, a, a high precision venture, and what we did in Australia was turn it from an experiment, which is actually what Roger Angel's group did. They they did develop it to quite a large extent, um, but uh, I think we kind of ran with it a bit a bit more in Australia. We took the idea of drilling holes in plates, that all worked well until we realized that it was costing a fortune to have all these brass plates with lots of holes in them. And so uh, in conjunction actually with the University of Durham in England, we started devising robotic instruments where you could use a machine to position the fibers. And in fact, the, the main system, which is still in use on the Anglo-Australian telescopes, developed in the late 1990s, is an instrument with an absolutely uninspiring name of 2DF. And 2DF stands for two degree field. That's the field of view that the telescope sees. And the way it works is that you have a, a steel plate 
Uh, and each optical fiber has a magnet attached to it, so it will stick to the plate. And it's got a little prism on the end so that the light from the mirror can actually get into the fiber through a right angle. Um, and that 2DF machine had 400 of these optical fibers and a robot that then positioned each one of them in turn. How long would that uh, take for the robot? To well, work? it takes about an hour. But okay. the clever thing is that you have two of these. So you have a, one that's looking at the, uh, at, the, at the mirror gathering light and another one that's being set up by the robot. And then you interchange them, hmm. you switch them around. Yeah. So you don't lose any time. Um, uh, forgive me if I finish the story off, though, because um, my role in all this was to produce the world's first truly wide field fiber optic system, which is on an instrument called the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope, mm -hmm. uh, which has a field of view of six degrees, um, you know, big enough to take in the whole of the Hyades star cluster easily. Um, and that uh, we built a succession of instruments culminating in a robotic machine with the name which is quite predictable of 60f the six degree field um, but now there is a new version of this which is still being commissioned on the telescope uh, which gets rid of the, the robot and positioning these things one at a time each optical fiber and there are 300 of them has its own micro robot built into it. So it just kind of walks across the field of view of the telescope <laughs> until it's in the right place. That's and so cool. Guess what they're called? Starbugs, because that's what they look like. Little bugs walking around inside the telescope. And so each little bug is, is, is sort of the end of a, of a fiber optic cable and it's yep. crawling around in the field of view to position itself so that it's perfectly aligned with the galaxy that you're attempting to view or star or whatever you're trying to do your spectrographic field of view on. And then you take your picture and then the little, the little bugs reassemble themselves for whatever you're trying to look at next. That's incredible. I had no idea. What an amazing uh, technology. That's so cool. What, uh, what's uh, interesting to me about it is this is exactly what we envis envisaged back in 1982. <laughs> but the technology was, you know, yeah. nowhere to be seen. And But now that microengineering technology is, it, 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 it's, is all there. It's um, um, mechatronics is the, the name of the game. Uh, artificial intelligence plays its part. So these uh, little fibers know where they've got to go. And there's a kind of feedback mechanism so that you know when it's really got to where it's supposed to be. Yeah. Works really well. Much cleverer people than me have built this thing, but you know, I was um, there at the beginning. <laughs> so, so <clears throat> you know, we talked about how Australia, although it does have beautiful skies, is mediocre for visible astronomy. And you talked a bit about radio astronomy. So let's talk a bit more about the square kilometer array and sort of where we are in the, the state of its development and, and what happens next, because that is a that's a game changer. That is as that is as impactful an observatory as uh, the extremely large telescope, the yeah. the Vera Rubin telescope, uh, James Webb. I mean, it is up there with the Large Hadron Collider. It is one of the most important yeah. scientific instruments that humanity will ever create. You've hit the nail on the head, Fraser. It is, it's big science. And that means international collaborations. And yes, people have to think things like CERN, the Large Hadron Collider, think things like the GMT, the Magellan Telescope, is a project of that magnitude. Something like $2 billion will be invested into it by uh, up to 15 nations, in fact, many of whom have signed up already. 
Um, what's delightful about this, and, and I'll just step back for a minute, if I may, is that just, uh, just under a month ago, it's about three and a half weeks ago, we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the very first radio astronomy observer, observation made in Australia. Uh, and it was made actually not very far from where I'm sitting at a place called Dover Heights. It's on the east coast of Australia and it was a World War II radar station. And a handful of astronomy minded engineers said, maybe we could use this for something else. Uh, and in fact, they um, on that day, 75 years ago, they observed the sun rising over the eastern horizon and got the first radio signal for an Australian radio telescope. Fast forward 75 years, and what we're in is a situation exactly as you've described with this mega project on our doorstep. And it, but that's not, it doesn't sort of exist in, in isolation because um, Australian radio astronomy has evolved over that 75 year period. We had the Parks radio dish built in 1961, a 65 meter dish. Um, many other similar facilities uh, and Australian radio astronomers have always had their eye on the big one. Uh, so they've essentially been very clever. They've built a number of what we call precursor instruments, instruments that will test the technology. Um, and they've also done a huge amount of work on looking for the very best site uh, on which you can build an instrument like that. So that was the first thing to sort out. It is uh, a, a place in Western Australia, very, very remote, uh, was once a cattle station, uh, but is now essentially devoted to the radio astronomy fraternity. It's about three, for any, anybody who knows the geography of Western Australia, about 800 kilometres northeast of Perth, which is the capital of that state. Um, radio quiet um, with you know, to, to an extraordinary degree, uh, that's to say no mobile phones, no microwave ovens, nothing that can actually leak radio radiation. And perhaps very importantly as well, it pays tribute to the traditional owners of the country on which it's being built, uh, the Wadri people uh, of Western Australia, who are playing a part in the, you know, the, the development of this. So the precursor instruments have been built on that site to take advantage of the radio quietness. And there are two of them. One is called ASCAP, um, which, you might not be surprised to, to hear stands for Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. So ASCAP is um, it, the first pathfinder. And in fact, it more resembles the dishes which will be built in Southern Africa because this is a mid-frequency machine. Uh, whereas the SKA itself in Australia will be at the lower end of the mm -hmm. frequency range. And so there is also a precursor for that, which is called the MWA, the Murchison Widefield Array. Murchison is the name of the, of the observatory site. So those two telescopes are doing fantastic work, even though you know, they're a small percentage of what we will have available when the Square Kilometre Array itself gets going. And, and I think, you know, when we talk about, like we saw what happened with, say, the Event Horizon Telescope, where you had radio telescopes around the world working together as a giant interferometer as one telescope the size of planet Earth. And so you're thinking, well, if you could have a telescope that's as big as one kilometer, how does that compare to a telescope as big as the entire Earth? So, so can you explain... When you say a square kilometer, what does that mean compared <laughs> to an, an interferometer the size of planet Earth? Why is that better than all the telescopes of the world working together? So 
That's a really good question. And it comes about because the square kilometer is, uh, as it was originally envisaged, that was going to be the collecting area of 1 million square meters. So if you imagine, uh, as it was thought to be in originally, a whole set of dishes and take the area of each dish right. and then you add it together, a square kilometer, 1 million square meters. Now it's changed slightly because it's a lot, it, a lot harder to work out the collecting area of a Christmas tree, um, because these are, you know, these are antennas that just stand up from the ground. But it will still be something like a square kilometer uh, collecting area. So that, of course, is infinitely more yeah. than the Event Horizon Telescope had. That was, if I remember rightly, eight facilities around the world. Probably the biggest ones were 20 or 30 meters in diameter. So even when you add all that together, you don't get anything remotely like a square kilometer. Yeah. I just what did the math. The, um, okay, the, the, the Chinese fast telescope yes. is a 500 meter telescope. It gives you a area of 0.2 kilometers. There you go. That's so, it's, right. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's still a fifth the size of a square kilometer array. The biggest telescope yeah. that's ever been built. One single telescope. This is going to be bigger by a factor of five, at, you know, at least. Yes, that's right. And and of course, um, the great thing about this one is you can point it anywhere, whereas fast tends to look mostly upwards. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, wherever wherever the, the yeah wherever the hole in the ground happens to be pointed today. Happens to be pointing, yeah. So, but, um, so yeah, we'll talk about sorry. that, and then I want to talk about the, that Christmas tree because it is a, a radical design from from Very I think so, what. Yeah what we envision a radio telescope to look like. Absolutely, just the, the, the difference between the SKA, the Square Kilometer Array, and the Event Horizon Telescope is, the Event Horizon Telescope has these telescopes separated at vast distances, so you get the resolution, you get the detail, enough detail to see an Event Horizon that, whatever it was, I can't remember how many yeah. million light years uh, M87 is away as the crow flies. Um, whereas with the Square Kilometer Array, you do get very high resolution, but uh, it's the collecting area that yeah. is what makes the big difference. So turning to the Christmas trees, um, it, it, look, I'm not a radio astronomer. My background is in optical astronomy, but I do get kind of what's happening uh, because um, it, it, if you think about these things looked at from above, they are cross shapes like that. But, and so it, the Christmas tree consists of a whole set of these dipoles as they're called, steel bars, actually aluminium bars, placed at right angles to each other uh, along a central axis. And they're Christmas tree shaped because they get smaller as they get nearer the top. And that sort of, we're familiar with that from VHF television antennas. Mm -hmm. um, you're far too young to remember the old- Oh no, um, I remember. <laughs> no, I was there. I, <laughs> we had a giant antenna on the, on my, you know, my dad was super like nerdy and he built a big okay. radio, I'm sorry, a big uh, VHF uh, array on top of the house. And we had this, okay. we had this dial that I would turn and it would turn this big antenna on the top oh, of the fantastic. house so that yeah. so that I could get different TV stations. And so if one station worked well, you know, we could get the CBC and then we would turn it and then we would get CTV. And yeah, no, I, I that was my childhood. So you're, you're yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly that age. No problem. <laughs> but you would know then that <clears throat> the, the, the longer the antenna, the lower the frequency. It, it's all it's all about wavelength. You know, low frequency equals long wavelength. So you've got a long dipole antenna 
that will be responsive to a, a low frequency. But with the, um, with the SKA, you want to be sensitive to a number of frequencies. So you, you basically just put the dipoles one on top of another and they get smaller as they get nearer the top, which is why it just looks like exactly like a Canadian spruce tree uh, when uh, when it's, uh, it's it's pine needles have fallen down. There's a mixed metaphor. Point. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about this just this difference because you know we talked about how yeah if you if you are able to set up these telescopes across planet Earth, they can act as one telescope. And yeah, if you want to look at the event horizons around supermassive black holes that's your machine but if you want to look at anything else you need something with that larger collecting area that's going to be able to look at fainter targets so what kinds of fainter targets will you be able to look at with something like the square kilometer array yeah so this the square kilometer array is is very much a general purpose instrument um I'm, you know one of the things that we prided ourselves on with the Anglo-Australian telescope when I was astronomer in charge was that we had a suite of seven, 17 different auxiliary instruments so we were all things to all astronomers. Now the SK isn't quite like that it's it's kind of all things to all radio astronomers it's not quite like that but it is certainly capable of looking at the whole history of the universe. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you know the, the most glamorous thing that you can think of is to look back into the dark ages that period after the big bang before the first stars switched on when we know that the universe was full of these veins of uh, highly dense hydrogen cold hydrogen which actually emits in the radio spectrum so we can detect it um, but the, the, the key thing about the square kilometer array is it is a wide field telescope the event horizon is focusing in on mm -hmm. one tiny, tiny bit of the sky. Uh, SKA is a survey instrument, essentially. It will look for things like pulsars, um, which are rotating neutron stars em emitting these brief flashes of radiation. And it will do that not just for stamp collecting, it will do it because we believe that pulsars actually have the potential to test Einstein's general theory of relativity to its limits. We've got to find a place where it starts falling apart because that's where new physics is. Yeah. We haven't found it yet. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing, as well as perhaps, um, you know, one of the ambitious things I, 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 I think is going to be very, very exciting is going back to those dark ages. Of course, we are further out into space. You look the further back in time you're looking. So you're looking back 12, 12 and a half, maybe 13 billion years to when these strands of hydrogen were were um, basically the building blocks of the universe and not only to detect them but to actually map them across so, the sky. So how will the square kilometer array and uh, you know apologies for my Canadian accent I, you know you're saying kilometer and I'm saying kilometer. Oh, and, look, everybody and, says everybody says kilometer here as well. No, I'm just, yeah I'm we just pedantic. No no no, no 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 we're no as as Canadians I, you know a lot of people make fun of me for my Canadian accent like the way I say lava and the way I say resources and things like that but the but the but the one that I will admit that we say it wrong is 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 kilometer that we should say yeah. kilometer it's kilogram <laughs> kiloliter exactly. it should be kilometer and yet we say kilometer it's just it's it's something wrong with our country and i just want to apologize no, no, kilonova yeah but 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 anyway so so again i will always say because it's just it's just in my head but but 
you know, you're looking back to the beginning of the universe, you're seeing these you're seeing this hydrogen, this primordial hydrogen that is that is left over from the Big Bang. And, and what are you detecting with, with the array? So actually, you're, you're directly detecting it, you know, this is this needs exquisite sensitivity on the part of the telescope. And that's why it's a square kilometer. But what you're detecting is the, the hydrogen itself, you're, you're looking at um, it's this transition between the state of the atoms of hydrogen that actually emits um, radiation with a frequency of 1427 uh, megahertz, uh, which is a wavelength of 21 centimeters. Yeah, yeah. So, um, centimeters is the one that everyone fa- is familiar everybody with. Everybody thinks of. Yeah, I'm yeah. just showing off here. Yeah, yeah, um, no, you translate it into, into meters. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it's because I'm a, 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 a neophyte radio astronomer. I've never thought of you know, megahertz in my life before until I've become mixed up with the SK. So 1487 megahertz. And that, so that's the frequency with which that radiation is emitted. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, it allows you, you know, we've been doing this ever since the dawn of radio astronomy, but doing it in our own backyard, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Um, mapping the, the spiral arms of the galaxy was one of the early triumphs of, of radio astronomy because you could see this hydrogen uh, throughout the spiral arms of our galaxy. Now we're looking for these strands of hydrogen 12, 13 billion light yeah. years away in the early history of the universe. It's it's such an important thing to think about, as you said, you know, that we that this technique of mapping the 21 centimeter line, that you're that you have this enormous cloud of hydrogen, then every now and then the hydrogen, you know, one little hydrogen atom in the blob will release this photon, but it's always <laughs> this exact same wavelength. And so yeah. wherever you look and you see those those photons coming at you, you know there is hydrogen there. There is raw material for forming stars, and we see it in the galaxy. But, but the galaxy, you know, we were already pretty familiar with all the processes. We can look at it with all these other wavelengths of the stars, and the you know, we can see the stars and the and the the clouds of gas and dust and so on. But when you look out to that that first period, right at the very beginning of the universe, really right after. That's the mystery. You know, the dark age is, a, is such a, an evocative term because yes. now you've got the you're looking back. And again, this idea of thinking backwards in time, you're seeing the entire universe's store of hydrogen before it turned into the galaxies that we see today. Where was it? How was it distributed? How was it coming together, flowing like like water into larger and larger formations. There's so much that we don't know about the universe today that we can't know until this telescope comes online and yeah. tells us this answer because no other machine can can peer into that period yet. That, that's right. And the, the other thing, of course, that it tells us is the hydrogen, we believe, concentrated in regions of a high density of dark matter and we we don't know what dark matter is yet yeah. but we know it was there and we believe that it play, played a crucial role in setting up this framework the scaffolding of of matter within the universe which eventually became the galaxies and the cluster of gal- clusters of galaxies yeah. that we see today so one of the things that w- we'll be able to do um, is something similar to what we do with the cosmic background radiation when you when you 
which is that radiation that covers the whole sky. It's the, the flash of the Big Bang as we're seeing it as it, uh, you know, 13.8 billion years after the event. Um, that has regions of slightly warmer and slightly cooler temperature. And by analysing that, you can actually learn a lot about the conditions within that fireball which formed the Big Bang. So you are able to do something similar. If you can build a map of the structure of these hydrogen clouds um, or strands or framework or whatever it is, um, then you can do the same kind of analysis yeah. on that. And that gives you an intermediate stage between the universe at the Big Bang and the universe today, uh, which tells us something about the evolution of the universe and may illuminate one of the other big problems that we don't know about, which is dark energy, mm -hmm. this stuff that makes the expanding universe accelerate in its expansion. So it sort of feeds into all that stuff too. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like we're, we're very familiar with, say, the Hubble Deep Field and the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. And I'm sure, you know, and that's you going from now to try to look back in time, but you're limited to about five billion years and occasionally you can see a little farther and when you take something like say um or i guess closer to closer to what 12 billion years i forget the exact distance that the deep field but you take say james webb it's going to do its version of the of the deep field and go even farther closer to the beginning but still you have this dark age and so when the square kilometer array comes online i can i'm envisioning this version of the of the deep field but it is purely primordial hydrogen in all directions we will have this we will have this picture of of the primordial universe before there were stars before there were galaxies it will be one of the most important surveys one of the most important pictures i think that that humanity has ever created and 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 we are still a decade away from getting our hands on this picture I mean, hopefully again, not quite a decade, but getting on for well, when does, when, right. does, when does when when's first light for square yeah, kilometer so array? it's in the region of 2027, eight, nine, perhaps. Yeah. Towards the end of the decade. Yeah. Um, and just to actually answer a question that you asked 20 minutes ago, sure. yeah. um, the, the the status at the moment is that the observatory itself, the square kilometer observatory is a sort of formal entity will we hope come into being before the end of this year yeah and that will allow you know that puts in place the mechanism whereby contracts can be let for the structure and the electronics and all the rest of it and that process we hope will result in construction of the telescope starting certainly in in uh, western australia uh, in the second half of next year. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the great things about this is you can kind of grow the telescope organically and gain more functionality as mm -hmm. you go. Um, and, you know, I think we'd be remiss to not talk about the fact that the similar process is happening in Australia, oh, sorry, in, in, in South Africa, with a similar scale, incredibly technical telescope there with, with Meerkat and, and moving on with that, right? Yes, absolutely. So the other half of the SKA is uh, in South Africa. Um, the it, It's actually a, um, an evolution from the Meerkat facility. I, I love the name Meerkat. It beats ASCAP into the ground. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you know how it was derived? It's a, I mean, it's a backronym, obviously, right? It, it's a kind of quasi-acronym. So um, the original 
plan, and this is a precursor for the Square Kilometre Array in South Africa. The original plan was to build something called the Karay, sorry, the Karoo Array Telescope. The Karoo is the region of South Africa. Karoo Array Telescope, that's the CAT. So they said, we're going to build the CAT, and that, everybody was happy with that. And then the South African government uh, increased the funding so that they could build, I think, 60 antennas rather than 30. So that they decided to call that more cat, which in Afrikaans is meerkat. <laughs> which of course is one of these. Yeah, know, well, those little, little, little critters. Lovely. That, yeah, that's beautiful. Lovely um, work there with the name. <laughs> and I, I want to get on to talking about Starlink, but I just wanted to, to add one more thing that keep, makes me really excited about the Score Kilometer Ray. And that's for the people who are, you know, really excited about the search for extraterrestrials, it will be yeah. the most powerful tool again yeah. for detecting. And the, the quote that I always like to run with is that that the square kilometer array will be capable of detecting Earth's radio traffic, like just for it for the uh, for um, air airports, airport radio traffic yeah. for about 100 light years. Yeah, that's right. not even directed. <laughs> like it's just like if we had when the square kilometer array is rolling, we can just point it at various stars and go, oh, they've got airlines yeah. there 100 light years away. Yeah, right. and they're not even intending to to transmit in our direction. So, um, uh, all right. So, so let's let's talk a bit about Starlink because um, Corey S asked in the in the questions, are you seeing the effects of Starlink and how is it affecting observations? We've heard a resounding thumbs down from the visible radio community. It's way worse for radio, isn't it? It, it, it is, that's right. And um, I mean, look, it, it's it, it's bad news for, as you say, for the optical community. And in, in fact, the amateur astronomy community, I think are the, the ones who will be most affected by this because they tend to use, particularly for um, dark sky imaging, wide field telescopes, uh, long exposures, and you've got the risk of these spacecraft going through your field of view. Yeah. Uh, among the professional optical telescopes, the one that will be most affected is the Vera Rubin telescope, mm -hmm. because it's the same thing. It's a wide angle telescope, this time with an 8.4 meter mirror uh, as well. So it's, it's very, very sensitive. Now, uh, SpaceX have certainly been uh, attempting to respond to this problem and they've they've got what they call um i think it's vizsat is that right or visorsat these are essentially yeah, visors visorsat yeah yeah and and they um i think the last several hundred of the starlink spacecraft have been launched with those which should uh, at least to some extent mitigate the problem for optical astronomers but as you said uh, fraser it is vastly more difficult for radio astronomers and in particular um, when we look at the higher frequencies um, so the the square kilometre array in Australia will be affected but far less than the square kilometre array in South Africa which looks at frequencies if I remember rightly up to about 15 uh, gigahertz um, throwing around these numbers again yeah. uh, that that those frequencies include uh, some of the really interesting frequencies when you're looking at organic molecules in dust clouds and things of that sort, which we might find, you know, these are the, the places which might harbor life uh, to be discovered uh, later on. Um, so one particular band of the transmission uh, 
uh, of Starlink coincides with one particularly important band mm. in the uh, in in the retinue of radio astronomers. It's actually right next to it. So the worry is that you'll get leakage across into the radio astronomy band. Uh, so there is um, there are talks underway as we speak mm -hmm. uh, about the possible mitigation strategies. For example, as the Starlink spacecraft are flying over the High Karoo in Southern Africa, whether their antennas can be deflected so that they're not beaming directly down yep. uh, at the antennas. Yeah, the, the, it's the problem. Oh, I was just going to say, so with I mean, with the with the visible telescopes like the Starlinks are bad, say, in Canada during the summertime because you get them visible for the entire field of view. They're bad in yeah. the southern hemisphere again in in the southern, you know, in the in the winter months for the northern hemisphere in the southern hemisphere it's their summer same thing you get a longer f transit across your sky but radio astronomers work in the daytime they so so there's no time when these aren't going to be going you know they're not visible because they're you know they're they're heading straight over the way it is with visible telescopes they're just going to be screaming as they go overhead but 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 is that like you know but the fact that they can turn off that radio transmitter as they pass over a you know a really important radio telescope that seems like there is a ray of hope that you don't get from the visible side that's right um and as i said discussions are in place or mm -hmm. in progress about that um the square kilometer array organization uh released a fairly lengthy document about a month ago, which elaborates on exactly what the effect is likely to be on the square kilometre array in South Africa and suggesting the remedial strategies that Starlink, um, sorry, that SpaceX might like to put in place. And I Please. think those discussions are ongoing. I'm actually in a meeting the day after tomorrow, Fraser, which yeah. is concerned with exactly this issue. So if we've been talking a couple of days hence, I might have been able to tell you a bit more than I can. Yeah, well, get, let, me just, let me know sorry, if you convince them because I think I think it's this is definitely within their power, I think, for them to just turn off the transmitters when they're flying over important radio observatories. As soon as they're over the horizon, turn the transmitter back on and everybody gets their internet. But for But let's try to maintain the science in a way i mean it's just not done like like airplanes fly around observatories because of this you know they don't want to mess up the the photography so i think this you know obviously you can't change the the trajectory of your satellite in in the field of a visible telescope but with these radio telescopes you can mitigate this um except uh, there is a gotcha there, and that is the way that Starlink, for example, and of course we're talking about OneWeb as well. That's another of these. Yeah, uh, and whatever the Chinese launch, whatever the Russians launch, like yeah, there's no going back. Right. Yeah, there's many, many of them. So, so for the Australian Square Kilometre Array, uh, there might be a problem that is actually less tractable, and that is, even though uh, the Australian telescopes have low frequencies, which are not sensitive to the frequency, they're not the same frequencies that the Starlink spacecraft are broadcasting on. What they do, if you've got all these spacecraft above your horizon, you get a reflection from terrestrial radio signals. So somebody in Perth, right. in radio radiation, it's picked up by a spacecraft over the Murchison 
radio astronomy observatory and you get a reflection back down to right. the ground. Yeah, that sounds like uh, the wow so signal. That, that sort of thing, that's yeah. right. Whatever the wow signal was. Yeah, possibly uh, a reflection. Yeah, possibly a reflection, that's right. And and um, that is, a, it's a lot harder to see how you can mitigate that because what you've got to then do is say, okay, everybody within 500 kilometers radius or 500 miles, whatever, turn your, turn your emissions off and that's never going to happen. Right. So it's more of a problem. Uh, um, one of the things that um, surprised me when I talked to radio astronomers who were involved with the Square Kilometre Array, they are worried about the reflection of terrestrial radio transmissions off the moon. So you know, stuff that's being broadcast <laughs> right. on the moon side of the Earth, going to the moon, coming back and messing up the observations in the SKA. So the it's moon supposed... is a pain even for radio astronomers. Look, I, uh, I won't hear a, a bad word against the moon. It's my favorite celestial oh, object. Really? I, see, I would push it into the sun. So, <laughs> yeah. So, well, maybe it's, you yeah. know, it's, it might be already over because it's probably because of the moon that we're here and we're talking like this. Fine. Thanks, moon. Yeah, there. Does that settle it? Does that even the field? And now I can push it into the sun and just get rid of it so that we can have better, more nights of observing. Because, you know, only being able to use a telescope half the, the month is sort of, uh, you know, it's just not fair. But look, you don't have to worry. In in about 50 billion years, it will be so far away that it doesn't actually matter anymore. Nor will there be a sun for it to reflect the light off of. So, right, you know, cool. that problem will sort itself out. All right, let's get some more questions from people. We've got just about five more minutes. Um, let's see. Uh, so JWW, JWW asked, what is your biggest discovery that you were a part of? What is the, you know, what is the... The, what where did you where do you get your Nobel Prize from? What will it be for? Yeah, <laughs> I have to say I'm still waiting for that. Yeah, and I suspect I'll be waiting for many many decades. Uh, look, um, so the work I have done as a working astronomer certainly back in the you know in my early era as a as a as a youngster uh, finding my way in astronomy, I I did discover a, a variable star that had some interesting properties, but that was never going to win anybody a Nobel Prize. Um, but the, 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 there's one paper, um, a scientific paper, which is very, very highly cited, uh, which my name is on. Um, and that is a paper, it's about the Hubble constant. And it was a spin-off from something called the 60F Galaxy Survey. So back in the early 2000s, I was project scientist for uh, a survey, actually, I beg your pardon, I was project manager should get that right for a survey of, um, of about 150,000 galaxies using this fiber optic technique that we were talking about. And so we, we, we mapped them across the entire southern sky. One of the things you can do with a wide field telescope like the UK Schmidt telescope is to do that entire sky, not just, you know, little sight lines through interesting bits of the galaxy. So we did the whole sky. Um, apart from the Milky Way, we're looking at galaxies, the Milky Way blocks their light off. And from that, we determined lots of things about the structure, the, the, the large scale structure in the vicinity of our own galaxy. These galaxies were only out to about half a billion light years, 500 million light years, not very far. But one of the things that it allowed you to do very cleverly was uh, a, a, a an independent, if I can put it that way, determination of the Hubble constant hmm. within about 
2%, something of that sort, completely independent of Cepheid variables or any of the other normal techniques that are used. Now, I have read that paper many times. I'm not convinced that I still fully understand it because I wasn't <laughs> the first author, but I was responsible for all the data. Yeah. And it means that my name goes on it. And I'm very honored to be part of it. <laughs> well, and, and now with the ongoing crisis in cosmology, it's even more important for people to have yes. a various mm. independent methods of measuring the the Hubble constant. So I wouldn't be surprised if people are are digging into that paper and going, can we replicate the result and can we try to bring down those error bars? So I wouldn't be surprised if you see your name pop up, you know, more and more as uh, as as time goes on. Uh, well, we've reached the the end of our hour. I don't want to take any more of your of your time, although I know it's you know your day has just begun uh, tomorrow for you uh <laughs> but but if people want to follow what you're doing where should they go what how can they sort of keep track of your of your busy activity so i have a twitter feed which um, i'm probably not as active as i should be it is at stargazer fred uh that's uh you know i try and if i'm doing anything really interesting i try and mention it sometimes it's boring stuff as well though never mind but the perhaps the best way and i don't want to in any way steal your uh, your audience fraser i but i we, beg you to steal this audience they would love to come <laughs> and i i think you know for those of you in the who are not in australia who have i hope they've all become fans and of this conversation <laughs> and they will they will stampede to come and uh, and check out everything you do. So where should they go? What should they do? They should go to the Space Nuts podcast, which yes. you can find pretty well everywhere. Space Nuts, every week we we do a podcast. It's a gentleman by the name of Andrew Dunkley. I talked to him. He was a radio presenter. He and I spoke together for many, many years, and then he retired. Uh, he did the sensible thing that I hope I will never do. He retired, uh, but decide, we decided to keep the podcast going. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, keep the talks going as a podcast. And we've been at it for three or four years now. Wonderful. And it seems to be very popular. It's a, a lot like the conversation you and I have had, actually, Fraser, because it tends to go off in all kinds of weird and wonderful directions and includes stars like our, there's a rooster that hangs around here and uh, he occasionally <laughs> contributes uh, little gems of knowledge to the discussion. So okay. space not. Space Nuts podcast, and we'll put a link in the in the show notes so people can can check that out. Uh, well, Fred, always a pleasure to talk to you, um, and I cannot wait. Again, you can tell how excited I am about all of the really interesting stuff that's happening. We didn't even talk about your new um, uh, space administration. That'll have to be a conversation for a future a future discussion because that's all coming together as well. So everything is just. It uh, sounds uh, really exciting in, in Australia and uh, definitely come back in the future and let us know what's happening. I'd love to. Thank All you right. very much. For it. It was a All great right. pleasure. Take care. We'll see you again. Thanks, everybody. Oh, and everybody, before I just hang up, remember, if you've got a bunch of questions that we didn't get to in the chat, go ahead, put them in the comments. I will gather a bunch of them up and I will answer them in some future question show. I look at them all. I see everything. I'm everywhere. I'm in your mind. Thanks. We'll see you next week.